Welcome to Phrenesis, a show dedicated to issues in political philosophy. Each episode will take a close look at important essays and ideas in political and social thought, linking them to historical and contemporary debates, which is to say, finding where they are discussed in the footnotes to Plato. Good afternoon. Uh, this is our second episode of the Phrenesis podcast, and today we are going to be discussing an essay from the great and controversial Leo Strauss. Uh, the essay we're going to discuss today is one that I think is reasonably well known, but isn't one of his most popular. And it is called Why We Remain Jews. And it, uh, it was published in, in, the, uh, in a collection of his essays and lectures entitled Jewish Philosophy and the Crisis of Modernity. But Will, you want to get us started off? What What's going on here and why we remain Jews? Right, so this lecture was actually delivered at the University of Chicago as part of uh, a symposium entitled Why Do We Remain Jews? And Strauss's subtitle is Can Jewish Faith and History Still Speak to Us? So I think it's important to remember that this lecture was delivered in 1962, uh, which is less than two decades after the end of World War II, and I think something like uh, 15 or 16 years after the Nuremberg trials, uh, when the, not even memory, the, you know, Nazism was very much a, a living thing very recently. And I think that's also coupled with the the growth and intensification of secular modernity. And so Strauss wants to answer the question, what does it mean to be Jewish uh, under these conditions? You're given the given the, the horror that just befell European Jewry and the foundational circumstances of secular society what you know how how can Jews remain Jewish or why would they what reason is there to the lecture was sponsored by the Hillel Foundation at uh, University of Chicago and so the audience almost certainly was very heavily Jewish but Strauss is not speaking only to Jews in what he's saying, or at least the lessons he, he gives are more generalizable to just that. And as um, Joseph Cropsey, uh, another professor at the University of Chicago along the same time, uh, says in the introduction he gives to Strauss, there are a lot of interesting parallels, both for how Jews can live in the modern world as sort of a model for other faiths struggling with apathy uh, in, in, in liberal society. And so there are parallels both between Jewish communities and Christian and Muslim and, and other communities. And I also think that we'll see that there are parallels between how a Jew ought to live in the modern world and how a per person of a certain sort or, or intellectual temperament should live in the modern Right. And so to start, I think it's important to make a biographical note about Strauss, which is that when he was younger, so, so something like 30 or 40 years before this lecture, uh, he was heavily involved with political Zionist movements in Germany. And I think we can see a lot of his later career and so he fled, you know, he fled Germany in that, you know, mass immigration of German Jewish intellectuals uh, when the Nazis came to power. And I think we can see a lot of his later career at, and the political philosophy, especially as an effort to make sense of what happened during the Second World War and especially what happened to European Jews at the hands of the Nazis. And so this is a this is a question that 
deeply interests him throughout his entire career. It's not just something that was posed to him at the symposium and he, he decided to answer. So I, I think this is not, we're, we're used to, we're used to Strauss as someone who writes on, you know, Plato and uh, Spinoza and, uh, but this is, this is not such a departure for that as something that I think preoccupied him through much of his career. This is very much, I, I think, part of, there, there's an inherent motivation to all those other academic works and why, why he, why he engages both in the hermeneutic he uses and with in the very particular Straussian style, that comes from, at least in part, political considerations. And as much as um, you know, Strauss battles and criticizes, both in this essay and in his work as a whole, historicism as a theory and as an interpretation of history and philosophy, I don't think he would deny that he is nonetheless influenced and emerging out of a particular historical context. And perhaps uh, the most obvious manifestation of this is the tension Strauss, throughout his whole career, tries to understand and investigate and ex uh, explore, and that is the tension between Jerusalem and Athens, between Greek philosophy and the Hellenic ideal of life, in other words, reason, and between the Hebrew, and more broadly Abrahamic way of life, between devotion to God and above all, acceptance of divine revelation as a way to govern one's life. And this, this conflict between reason and revelation Strauss does not think it is possible to to solve one cannot dispel the other because to do so would require speaking on the other other's terms right and he sees the the condition of you know, his contemporaries um, in the Jewish community as experiencing or unable to experience the revelation that their ancestors did, that, that they will never have access to the revelation that the Israelites you know, uh, were given in the Old Testament. And so part of the question becomes, how can you retain an allegiance to Judaism, or what in Judaism do you give your allegiance to if not to the to that original source of revelation because he thinks contemporary Jews can't experience that with the same intensity or the same realness as their ancestors did right it, it wouldn't be possible and I think in large part because modern liberal thought and politics have tried to sort of merge both Jerusalem and Athens and subjugate them both under a scientific yearning for conquering the uh, conquering nature and understanding all, all, all the world. And, and this Strauss, I think, would probably term uh, scientism or, or could be described as such. Um, but rather than an acknowledgement of two separate high goods, the, the highest good uh, for the model of Jerusalem again being revelation and the model of in the model of Athens being reason the liberal order somewhat tries to conquer both and explain everything away right the so both reason and revelation for Strauss make claims on the same sort of goods so it's not just that their their terms are incommensurable that they can't recognize the exclusiveness of the terms the other speaks about, but that they lay claim to the same territory. So that the, the revelation of the Old Testament, when you think of something like to the Ten Commandments or something, 
uh, aside from uh, you know, sort of theological revelation, it also provides a way of discerning between higher and lower forms of life or making normative judgments about you know, action, life, dispositions. And that's very much the same territory that Greek philosophy especially lays claim to. And that the uniqueness of secular modernity is that and Strauss criticizes this in Natural Right and History when he talks about Max Weber, that it doesn't give itself the tools to speak about things like distinguishing between higher and lower modes of life or making normative judgments about actions because that all goes on the value half of the fact-value distinction and modern, what you term scientism, can only draw draw conclusions about facts in the world. Yeah, only empirical claims, no, no normative ones. Right. And he calls that positivism in this essay. Right, right, yeah. Positivism. And this, this is a really fun essay, and I think it gets to a lot of a lot of the things I really like about Strauss. And first and foremost, being... He really seems to love the philosophic life. And throughout his work, he does talk about it as a type of ideal and a difficult one. But to me, it just seems so apparent when he's discussing uh, Spinoza throughout this and uh, Nietzsche, just how much he's enjoying thinking about these issues and working through them and discussing them and it's wild when he uh in this lecture he he just starts quoting spinoza off the top of his head but he does a lot of fun things in here making references uh to different thinkers somewhat uh, somewhat obscured not not quite esoteric uh again the, this was a a public lecture we're we're uncertain if he planned for it to be published at some point or if that was a possibility so i'm not sure how how much one can read into certain details uh contra is um intentionally written and certainly esoteric works but but this one does have some fun and i and i don't know what to make of this but at least in the opening it really reminds me of Rousseau and, and his discussions uh, of Geneva when uh, Strauss is talking about his upbringing in Germany and how in some ways difficult, but in other ways really great and hopeful life was. And he never talks about, I don't think he mentions really having to leave uh, Germany in, in this lecture. And he, he certainly doesn't... Uh, play up what would have been numerous tragedies in his life surrounding that period. And he leaves that sort of to the listeners to, to intuit. But it seems to me uh, part of how this might be generalizable beyond just the Jewish community, if, if a republic like the one Rousseau envisions as sort of the ideal, that being Geneva, could fall into Nazism and, and all the horrors of World War II Germany it seems like that's possible in any location and with any community. Right, and I, I don't think Strauss is claiming that you know he, he grew up in the in a perfect community. This had to have been uh, while Bismarck was still in office. Uh, uh, and I think it would have been clear not to a child, but to uh, you know adult observer that you know, this was far from perfect. But you know, to a child, maybe it seems that way, and that it, rather than an idyllic community that it, you know experiences an invasion of something evil that it was you know 
an idyllic childhood, uh, or or at least one part of it, which was that you were safe being Jews in this country that was shattered, frankly, quite early. This, was, this wasn't something that as a young man he experienced. This was a, a, a chi- as a child meeting refugees from Russian pogroms. And and that, that, that's why I, I agree with you, you know, he's having you know, some fun throwing references in here, you know, maybe playing with these tropes like you mentioned Rousseau's Geneva, but the, there's a d- deep emotion behind this because it's colored by his earliest experiences. He mentions one of the, his earliest experiences and then growing up and being forced to leave your motherland because of anti-Jewish political action. That has to be painful. And And I think that we have to at least partially or mostly, I would say, read this essay with that in mind. That the temptation is there when you've gone through all of this you've been you've been chased out of where you grew up you've you know, lived across an ocean while millions of your you know pe- people you, you think of as, as your kin uh, you know religious brothers and sisters are slaughtered and you have to have a crisis of something like faith or identity at that point. And a lot of this essay is about how to respond to that. And he lays out some, much of it is laying out strategies, if you will, to respond to that. And I don't know, do you want to go through those now? Yeah, let, let's, let's start off. Uh, Strauss mentioned sort of at first that for each individual Jew, there is a practical problem on low and solid ground, and that is, how can I escape discrimination? And so when he's saying this, it seems certain on low and solid ground, and particularly the American context, and with our sort of concept of how liberty ought to work, as a Jew, there is this question of how can I escape discrimination? And he says the answer is simple. By ceasing to be recognizable as a Jew. But he continues on talking about some Jews in Los Angeles who try to solve their problem of discrimination by becoming Christian scientists. There were first four and then ten and then more. Then at a certain moment, the chairman said, well, that's really nice, but why don't you make another group, a group of your own, of Christian scientists, meaning of former Jews. And for Strauss, right up for, out of the gates, it's clear that one cannot help but be a Jew. If you try to lose yourself of that identity, it gets thrust back on you. It's something that the world places on your shoulders, not something you get to choose. Right. And he goes through sort of a genealogy here where what he lays out is basically an entire existence of discrimination against the Jewish people. First in the Roman Empire, then under Latin Christendom, and it changes character uh, when political structures become more liberal. So, whereas in, in Spain, which he calls the first country in which Jews felt at home in the world, changes its official policy, it banishes... Jews from Spain if they won't convert to Christendom. And yeah, that's a form of discrimination, but it's overt. What 
Jews experience in liberal society is different. It's discrimination at the hands of private associations, basically, and not at the hands of the state, which, at least in what he says, protects people equally by law. And like you just said, the, the one way to escape discrimination is to cease to appear being Jewish, but he doesn't think that that's a live option. But then he raises another one, which some Jews at the time raised as a possibility, and which people of other faiths are raising now, which is to do away with liberalism entirely. Right? So if you're going to be discriminated at the hands of private actors, and the state won't protect you from that discrimination, we'll just do away with the public-private distinction that Strauss thinks is fundamental to liberalism. Liberalism rests on the public-private distinction. But then he thinks we've seen an example of this uh, in the Soviet Union, right? And I don't know if you want to talk about that. Yeah. Um, the Soviet Union, Strauss considers to be no better than liberal societies in its treatment of Jews and absolutely worse. Uh, and he doesn't even dwell on this for too long. Quite easily, just the pogroms that existed in the Soviet Union, the way in which Soon enough, the state apparatus began to discriminate, uh, began to really persecute Jews uh, once again. Uh, there's a really uh, interesting uh, Russian Jewish, now Israeli uh, politician, uh, but, but intellectual, Natan Sharansky, uh, has wrote some really fascinating things about what, what it was like being uh, a, a Jew persecuted and kept in prison in the Soviet Union. And without the private discrimination, Strauss seems to think the public persecution would be so much worse. Right. He says that Stalin fought Hitler, but not before learning something from Hitler, which was that it was really easy to unify Poles and Slavs and Ukrainians and Russians if you could just make it state policy to discriminate against Jews. And, and Strauss thinks this is endemic to communism generally because that's how history bore it out and there's no higher judge for communists than history. So it seems like a problem that's, right now it looks inescapable. Right? He, he basically says there's no way to escape discrimination either in liberal or non-liberal societies, but, and at the beginning, of this lecture, he quotes Heinrich Hein uh, and a poem he wrote that basically calls being born Jewish a great misfortune. And Strauss disagrees with this. And so right, right now he's laid out that it's basically impossible to escape discrimination, but he still maintains that this isn't any kind of misfortune. So there has to be you know, another reason to remain Jewish, you know, that isn't just you're left alone to do so, because that's not the case. Yeah, I, I'd like to tack on uh, one uh, extra element to, to sort of the Soviet Union as an example. And even for part of, I, I think, in Strauss's mind, doing away with the public-private distinction is that the public ends up becoming totalizing and anything that isn't in accordance with state values and the state ideology is inherently anathema. And the worship of a god, particularly a localized and particular god as a Jewish one is, is in no way reconcilable with a state that has to be ultimate. And I think we're seeing this right now. A great example is China. And the Vatican, despite trying to liberalize uh, relations with China and, and trying to provide more room for the church to be publicly recognized and accepted in China, cathedrals, Chinese cathedrals now are having to put up uh, alongside their religious art paeons to the Chinese Communist Party. The bishops are having to uh, 
alongside their homilies, speak of the wonders of Chinese communism for the individual above anything that faith could offer. And so any ideology, but particularly a religious faith with divine revelation, with a God that requires worship, is not possible if you just if you get rid of the public private distinction if you make the public become the totality of life right and you saw this in the early roman empire with the persecution of christians uh, at the same time it's very close to how he thinks of philosophy as being subversive of public order it's it's not that different from the reason why athens had to execute socrates that he was going to subvert the public religion that's you know one of the charges leveled against him uh and and so right something something like a religion that eschews the public private distinction there's no public or private for religious life has to be subversive of both regimes with no public private distinction because then you just have a rivaling public claim or to something like liberalism that requires that claims like that be kept private and out of the public sphere. And I'd like to note, Will and I have disagreed uh, about this a little bit, but I think his connection with, with the, the treatment of Jews and the treatment of philosophers is very much in Strauss's mind. And in some ways, I... I think one could replace philosopher or philosophy in a lot of the instances where there's discussion of Judaism uh, and Jews in this essay, and you would also have a very accurate conception of what Strauss thinks a real intellectual life has to look like um, in, in society. But I'd like to move on. Strauss says that we can't get rid of our Jewishness, we can't avoid it, and we are going to be discriminated, if not persecuted, because of it. How do we deal with this? And the only solution seems to be Zionism, for which Strauss thinks that the right to demand self-determination is natural and a necessary thought. And I think it's really interesting the way he phrases in here, the right to demand self-determination. We often talk about uh, international politics, uh, human rights, and the right to self-determination. The uh, And I don't think it's controversial in this day and age to think that nations should be able to decide what happens to them and to be able to decide the polity they want for their people. Strauss's right to demand self-determination seems very intentional. Yeah, I actually think this is something that you're seeing in kind of multicultural theory and contemporary political theory, which is people trying to work out how to deal with a nation within a nation or a nation within a state. So good examples of this are... Uh, certain uh, Native American nations or the Quebecois in Canada uh, you know or the even the Catalan region in Spain even though that's kind of messy but when you have a, a group of people living in this proximity that share you know, so much of a culture of a character maybe speak their own language uh, have their own schools, things that are really insulated from the society at large, uh, that in, in some sense it's just to let them protect their heritage and demand self-determination, although I don't think that was the character of the European Jewry before the Holocaust. They were, at least in Western Europe, extremely well integrated into European society. But it's the same idea that, that a, a group of people taken together with that kind of a common interest has 
a right at least to be heard when demanding that. And I, I think it is well worth mentioning that for Strauss, well, he, he quotes another, uh, another thinker uh, to this effect, I, I believe uh, Pinsker, but I, it seems to also be Strauss's opinion as well that the Jewish nation need not be Israel. He says, Uganda is as good as any other place, which is to say it, it doesn't need to be a specific locale. It is the entity itself and being able uh, for the, and allowing the community to be able to live its life as it sees fit. That's the concern, and that, that's how he tries to approach Zionism. Will want to tell us about sort of the implications or, or the ways Zionism could be brought about and the problems he sees with those? Right, so he distinguishes between three different kinds of Zionism, basically. And there are problems with each of them, at least taken by themselves. The first is political Zionism, which is what he thinks is the next obvious step when you rule out assimilation into liberal society. And he also introduces between Zionism and assimilation becoming a sect like any other which is basically a group that you can enter or exit at will. But he thinks that there's no proper understanding of Judaism where that doesn't completely destroy it. The, having it passed down by your parents, creating exit rights like that basically would d destroy that understanding of Judaism, which he thinks is the understanding of Judaism. But after that, he starts to talk about Zionism. And... The, the first way of, of, of talking about that is just political Zionism, which is direct political action to establish a Jewish state. And while that seems necessary, he thinks it doesn't by itself carry with it any of the distinctive and valuable Jewish cultural traditions with it. It doesn't carry the character of a people. And in fact, it sits a little uneasily with the concept of Judaism generally. And then he proposes something called, that he calls cultural Zionism, which is that the, the Jewish people asserts a character for itself. And you know, that, that, sounded, that sounds to me a little like how Herder thinks of nationalism. You know, a national spirit that you know, is, is distinctive from other nations, um, but that this still misses something integral. And he finally arrives at kind of the, the final live option, uh, which is religious Zionism. And re religious Zionism is basically doubling down on the revelation that Judaism was founded upon. But like we discussed in the beginning, he doesn't think that anyone in contemporary society can have access to that the way that their ancestors did. So the question then arises how to maintain a, a religious Judaism of that sort without having access to the revelation on which it's based. And Strauss does a fascinating thing here. Um, I, I think these distinctions are, are really important. I, I'm not uh, qualified to speak to it extensively, but I think it is clear in modern-day Israel there are these tensions between people who view Israel as either a very political or cultural Zionist project and people who view it as a fundamentally religious project. Um, that that's still being worked out. But Strauss quotes from Spinoza at this point from the Theologico-Political Treatise. He quotes, If the principles of their religion did not effeminate the Jews, I would regard it as perfectly possible that one day, if the political constellation is favorable, they might succeed 
in restoring their estate. I don't believe he said Palestine because, from his point of view, Uganda would have been as good as Palestine. Now, because I did not interpret this very interesting utterance of Spinoza, what he means by the effeminating character of the Jewish religion, which is very <coughs> austere, as you doubtless know, but he meant simply, by effeminating, he meant trust in God, instead of trust in one's friend guns and other hardware. Spinoza meant by that, trust in God instead of trust in one's own power and hardware. And this, it seemed really odd to me. Uh, and, and it took me a minute. I, I, and this is part of why I think that maybe this was intended uh, for uh, publication, or maybe that the editors a- added this in. But hardware is quoted here. And I think what Strauss is getting at, he is quoting Spinoza who is referencing Machiavelli and the very interesting things that are done in the prints when it comes to quoting from the Bible, particularly in the David story. The way the story is retold, it seems to be a word-for-word retelling, but rather uh, than saying David... uh, I, I don't have... The text in front of me, but rather than putting the onus on David's prayer and piety and trust in God, it's changed in the prince to say that David trusted in God, but also in his own power and hardware, the the sling that he used to, to slay Goliath. And so Strauss is very critical Machiavelli. Uh, he has described him uh, time and time again as a profound teacher of evil, as sort of where modernity went off the rails. And this seems to be a deep criticism of the political project or, or of trying to put one's faith entirely in the political project, uh, of putting their faith in their own power and hardware. I think Strauss is getting across here that that Jews need to trust in God, that, that, that is their, their, that's the only option available to them. And maybe it's not possible, as he says throughout this, it's not possible to have quite the piety or fervor or zeal of our ancestors. We know too much and our society doesn't allow it. But that might be the only way out of these problems. Right. And this is not a debate that's so foreign from Christianity. When you know, there's, a, there's a, real, a, a real rift about how political is the Christian religion. Are you meant to just separate yourselves from political society to... to or from political participation, for political action, but just to believe and you know keep tidy your own sphere, or is it meant to be politically transformative? And I think Strauss is getting at a similar rift in Judaism, and I think you're right that he sees doubling down on this belief as if not the better option than something that political Zionism can't do without. But he also seems to see a kind of nobility in not breaking with the belief of your ancestors, right? Not just, not believing because, not believing because you've thrown yourself uh, into faith in this revelation, but believing in the tradition of your ancestors, maintaining that that tradition. There's something noble about that, right? There is something noble, and throughout he he talks about Hein was wrong. We aren't afflicted. Being a Jew is not an illness. It is a heroic sacrifice. It, it is. It is truly noble. 
Um, but I think that is insufficient and insufficient for Strauss. And so that there is a really good, really interesting quote in discussion, uh, quote, quote of Nietzsche's on uh, assimilation for, for the state of Israel that comes from Daybreak, I believe. I want to forego that for a minute because this is where Will and I really disagree, and I think this is the heart of it. And if there's any Strauss scholars listening, they might disagree strongly too, but I, I think Strauss fundamentally believes there is nothing else but, but to have faith and, and that one must trust in Revelation above all. For the Jewish people, there is no option. It might be difficult to return to history, but you can't do anything other. Philosophy is insufficient, and the philosophic life, though good, is insufficient. And he he goes on to talk about <clears throat> contemporary Jews who uh, might consider themselves agnostic or atheistic. The unbelieving Jew of our age, he says, if he has any education, is ordinarily a positivist, a believer in science, if not a positivist, without any education. In this, Strauss says, raises the question, what is science? And that, for a non-believing Jew, for, for anyone who is a non-believer, if you put all of your hopes in science, putting your hopes in science solely obscures the inability of science to justify itself or explain the first principles of its method. Or to give you any meaning, or to give your life any meaning. Or to give your life any meaning, yeah. I think there's a sense where he, or if not he, then at least I would say, that if you're what he would call a modern unbelieving Jew, where you were raised in, say, an Orthodox household to be you know, religiously Jewish, to profess the revelation that the Torah describes, and you then, quote-unquote, convert to positivism, uh, that, that, that that's what you profess publicly, that that is so unable to provide you with any meaning that your life almost has to be parasitic on the Judaism that you renounced. And by that I mean the revelation or the, uh, you know, the, the religious element of it, the part that gives your life meaning and structure and allows you to distinguish between higher and lower forms of living, something that science lays no claim to. And it can, because it can only describe phenomena. And so it has to be parasitic on something non-scientific. And I think when he talks about people being unable to leave their Judaism behind, that it's impossible that's one way of thinking about that. And, and the problem with science is not just that it's descriptive and empirical and can't tell you how to live a good life. I, I think there are plenty of people, particularly Steven Pinker, who would say science can tell you how to live a good life. Utilitarian philosophers are, are scientists of that sort. The problem... And, and Strauss makes clear about this. The problem of that, and I think also philosophy to a large extent, is that it has an infinite regress. Science is always being reevaluated. There's no terminus. There's no point where we say we have it. We understand the world. Nature has been conquered. There is no more knowledge that we need. It is not possible. 200 years from now, the scientific establishment will look entirely different. Who knows what quantum physics and mechanics and computing will overturn about the commonly held assumptions we have. By 200 years, probably all things quantum will be considered outdated and just rough heuristics for, for what actually is occurring in the real world. It is not possible for science to reach an end. I There's another quote from the... Uh, Essay and or lectures. It's collected in the same volume. Uh, and this, this is just called Athens and Jerusalem. He says, 
According to the Bible, the beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord. According to the Greek philosophers, the beginning of wisdom is wonder. We are thus compelled from the very beginning to make a choice, to take a stand. Where then do we stand? We are confronted with the incompatible claims of Jerusalem and Athens to our allegiance. We are open to both and willing to listen to each. We ourselves are not wise, but we wish to become wise. We are seekers for wisdom. Philosophy. By saying that we wish to hear first and then to act, to decide, we have already decided in favor of Athens against Jerusalem. The, in the way, shoot, there's a way that was supposed to tie in a little bit better. So I think one thing that I at least want to say, and I think Strauss understands this, where when you talk about utilitarianism even, but when you talk about science, sure it purports to offer you a way of you know judging what is good and bad, but no one actually lives their lives like that. It, it, it doesn't make any sense of the decisions we have to make and one of the things and you know this is in natural right and history that Strauss wants to revive is a kind of you know way of acting that's not deontological or something that you know where habituated wisdom of being good at living is how he thinks of natural right and that's a philosophy that can actually make sense of the way we live and make sense of the way we see higher and lower modes of living. And science just fundamentally cannot do that. And so people who you know, profess their secularism and their belief in science who call themselves secular Jews must be relying on something else to structure the way they live. And I think when he says you can't leave Judaism behind, uh, you know, you can't just renounce it and assimilate. That doesn't just mean outwardly, but inwardly, you're still probably relying on that structure to give your life meaning and to order things. So I, I agree with most of what you just said. You still seem to think that philosophy offers meaningful solutions for our lives you, you just said that that people who can construct uh, a, a morality of life from science don't live by it I mean people who construct the same from from philosophy certainly don't live by it I, I don't think any moral philosopher ha is commendable for being a good person um, but isn't but that's a defect in their philosophy but the but my point being that philosophy and science don't even make claims in the same realms, right? Same. I, I think science is the way of Athens. It is a perverted, debased form of philosophy. It's one that's not as insightful. And science in this sense, uh, I, I mean particularly the scientism, I the great philosophers, Aristotle was as much a natural scientist uh, as what, what we would consider an academic philosopher today. But this scientific thirsting for knowledge and conquering and, and mastery over the world isn't different from the desire of wisdom and philosophy. It, they're oriented slightly differently but they are of the same form, the same species. It, the problems of science are the same as the problems of philosophy. Philosophy will continue to be constantly reevaluated and changed. There, there is no end point. And as much as I wish we could just say Plato's form of the good is an end point, I think both that isn't true and to the extent that one might try to live their life around that, you are approaching a debasement of revelation and the Jew, the the model of life presented by represented by Jerusalem, rather than the Athenian model. But my point isn't that 
both science and philosophy reach towards things that are you know at their core unattainable that you know Plato doesn't think we can ever grasp the good just like most scientists in the you know, in their right minds wouldn't tell you that they you know will anytime soon or ever come up with a unified theory of the universe but when you talk about someone like Aristotle having a a combined sort of a, a, a holistic theory of both action and the universe Strauss thinks those have been split apart from each other those are those are, are no longer the same thing to where you know, Aristotle thinks to some extent you need to harmonize your actions in a way that or at least Plato did that reflects the cosmos that the, the way to order your actions reflects the order of the cosmos and that's been ripped apart you know it you know since the modern turn basically and so that when we talk about philosophy now because of the gains of what was then natural philosophy and is now just what we call science we can't talk about it in the same way we can't talk about harmonizing our actions with the cosmos or something because we don't even think of the universe as a cosmos anymore. And so when we talk about doing philosophy and doing science, that what used to be one thing, their ends have split off to where philosophy speaks partly to how to live your life. Now, we might think those theories are defective, and a lot of them probably are, but that's at least what they're trying to get at. And science, if it's being honest with itself, can't make those normative claims. There's no place in science um, for that. I, I'm willing to see that. I, I think the one addition it's important to make is, is that Science as it is done today, and Strauss talks about elsewhere, is an ideological project of sorts. And while the research done in a basement laboratory, you're right, isn't trying to perhaps answer moral questions, the ideology of scientism, if it isn't trying to learn or, or develop new moral ideas does come with a moral expectation. And we discussed this last week a little bit uh, in our episode on Adrian Vermeule, that liberal society, even though it purports to not have values, that, that it purports to be neutral, even if that were possible, that's taking a stance. That is a morality of its own. Correct. And I, I, I agree that scientism does come with a certain sort of expectations for a disposition toward things at least. But that doesn't come from the science itself. It has to come from elsewhere. There's no empirical study of the universe you can do, uh, you know, or of animals or of chemical reactions that then gives you the ideological baggage you're talking about when someone says, oh, you just need to be, be rational, you have to believe in science. You can't be religious, believe in science. Because, you know, that... You can't make that conclusion just by doing science. So that means it's imported from somewhere else. And those are the claims that philosophy is making. That's why it's dishonest to say you know, I'm a secular Jew, I just believe in science. Because even if you take the, the disposition that scientism expects of you, you have all of this other stuff in there that doesn't come from the science itself. And so, you know, maybe you get that from somewhere else, but I think Strauss thinks it's a possibility that you just retain it from the Judaism that you've renounced but yeah. can't ever really let go yeah, of. I... I agree with that i think our our conflict continues on this point i 
I do not think Leo Strauss is... I don't know how to phrase this exactly. I don't think he is a proponent of philosophy or of Athens as a model. Throughout his work, he discusses the tensions and he puts Athens and Jerusalem into this dialectic and certainly recognizes the spots where Athens, philosophy, science, whatever you want to call it, is able to shed light on Revelation and Jerusalem. In the penultimate paragraph, he, he asks, what is science? I think, hopefully to solve some of your concerns, one could ask, what is philosophy? Nevertheless, Strauss responds, why science? Nevertheless, whatever might follow from that, I must now, by God, come to a conclusion. Whatever may follow from that, I must by God, come to a conclusion. These most fundamental questions, the first things of any inquiry, do not make sense or cannot be explained outside of Revelation. There is no way to verify Revelation. Athens can help us understand aspects of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem is the final say as unsatisfying and as unfulfilling as that may be as much as we wish we weren't Jews as much as we wish there wasn't a God as much as we wish that we could conquer nature and everything made sense that is not possible we don't have our own power we don't have our own hardware all we have is faith I, I think that's a controversial interpretation of Strauss. I, what I fall back on there is how is that not a misfortune? It, it is a misfortune. And I, I do not know um, where it is in his work. Um, he says it, but there is in that say where... I believe he says, unfortunately, Jerusalem seems the more natural. I could, I could, I could give an explanation why you know I think that's not an unfortunately, which is what you alluded to earlier, where philosophy you can't live your life just by doing philosophy you need to make a decision to give yourself some stable source of meaning of structuring your actions you can't just do it by breaking down the structures of things around you uh you know questioning everything that's that's not a way that anyone can live and the benefit of opting for jerusalem is it gives you those stable structures to live in. And that's, you know, that's why, you know, saying that, you know, the, the, the secular Jew try as he might, you know, wishes as he might to renounce his Judaism, just, you know, to be secular and nothing else. It might be a good thing that he's not able to extract himself you know, from the tradition he grew up in, because if he did, he would be afloat, basically. I, I think you are right. I still think that. I believe I misquoted Strauss. I, I think it was unfortunately. It's just this dichotomy, of Athens and Jerusalem. But I, I think that unfortunately remains. And that in the world, in a world with Athens, in a world with reason and with science, there is no way a religious faithful life, Jewish or otherwise, is comfortable. There is no way it is easy. There's no way it even makes sense. It is fundamentally incomprehensible. 
we are in every element of our lives from birth raised up in a society that tells us to reason to try and understand to conquer nature and that it is uncomfortable and difficult and life seems like it would be so much easier if reason was all we needed and, and we could truly live our lives at, uh, as Athens models. But we couldn't. But we can't. And, and <laughs> that, I think, is the fundamental question of Strauss's work. How do we deal with that? I'll just say, like, well, without wanting to grant that interpretation to everything Strauss wrote, I, I think it's a good interpretation of this lecture. It's a wonderful lecture. I recommend listening to it. Hearing Strauss speak is energetic and exciting. I also encourage reading it. It's There's so much more you pick up on that way. Audio is available on the Leo Strauss Center website. Uh, you can find the book uh, in various locations. Thank you very much uh, for listening to us yet again. Hopefully you have enjoyed uh, this project with us. I'm loving Phrenesis so far. Hopefully you feel the same way. Well, of course. I believe I have if you have any questions comments you think we totally misunderstand strauss anything else let us know leave us a review and listen to us next time